In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. Just yesterday, Holy Saturday, we read in the Divine Office a very powerful homily, an ancient homily, that can help us to enter into this time of prayer about this grace, this immense feast of Easter. This ancient homily places before our eyes the scene of Jesus after his death going to search for our first parents. The Lord approached them bearing the cross, the weapon that had won him the victory. At the sight of him, Adam cried out to everyone, My Lord be with you all. Christ answered him, and with your spirit. He took him by the hand and raised him up, saying, Awake, O sleeper. Rise up, work of my hands. You who were created in my image, rise, let us leave this place, for you are in me, and I am in you. Together we form only one person, and we cannot be separated. How wonderful it is to realize that this is the Lord's vision of our relationship. That we can rightly consider the two of us, that is, each one of us, alongside Jesus, as the inseparables. You are in me, I am in you. Together we form only one person and we cannot be separated. How incomplete, how empty our life would be without the constant presence of the risen Lord. It pains us to think of what it would be like to go through life all alone. And so we necessarily cry out to Jesus, Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for making me an integral part of your divine life. On this great feast of Easter, it is only right that our thoughts go to Our Lady. We can try to imagine the state of her soul during these past three days. Thirty-three years earlier, she had listened to Simeon with her eyes big as saucers as he pronounced those mysterious words. Behold, a sword shall pierce your soul also. Mary had spent so many years pondering those words, and now it has come to pass. One prayerful soul helps us to imagine Mary during the evening of Holy Saturday. It was towards 11 o'clock at night 
when the Blessed Virgin, incited by irrepressible feelings of love, arose, wrapped a gray cloak around her, and left the house quite alone. She went first to the house of Caiaphas, and then to the palace of Pilate. Her appearance, as she walked slowly along, was that of a person seeking something. She often bent down to the ground, touched the stones with her hands, and then inundated them with kisses, if the precious blood of her beloved son was upon them. Our thoughts go to those gathered in the upper room. They had been there from the afternoon and evening of Good Friday, desolate, crushed, terrified. Suddenly, that knock on the door on that first Easter Sunday, Mary Magdalene comes in and throws everyone into confusion with those simple and incredible words, he lives. I have seen him. In the blink of an eye, everyone goes from hopelessness to exhilaration. We ask our Lord right now to help us to somehow appreciate all that those apostles the others with them experienced in that instant. The importance of this miracle is so great that the apostles are, above all else, witnesses of Jesus' resurrection. They announce that Christ is alive, and this becomes the nucleus of all their preaching. Think, for example, of that moment in the very first chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, when it comes time to choose Matthias, when it choose the, the successor to Judas, the Apostles said, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection, and they chose Matthias. This Jesus the apostles say some days later, this Jesus God has raised up, and we are all witnesses of it. In the third chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, when it comes time for the curing of the blind, the lame, the lame beggar, the, the apostles say, he whom God has raised up from the dead. He is the one who has done this. We are witnesses of his resurrection. St. Josemaria, speaking about this great feast, cries out, Christ is alive. This is the great truth that fills our faith with meaning. Jesus, who died on the cross, has risen. He has triumphed over death. He has overcome sorrow, anguish, and the power of darkness. Easter is a time of joy, St. Josemaria continues. 
It is a, a time of joy for Christ is alive. He is not someone who has gone, someone who existed for a time and then passed on, leaving us a wonderful example and a great memory. No, Christ is alive. Jesus is the Emmanuel, that is, God with us. His resurrection shows us that God does not abandon his own. As the prophet says, Can a woman forget her baby at the breast, pity no longer the son she bore in her womb? Even though these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Well, as we ponder this scene, the scene of Jesus appearing to the apostles in the upper room, two clear attitudes stand out going forward. Gratitude and the determination to continue this relationship with the living Jesus. In the first place, gratitude. From that moment, that terrible moment on Good Friday, when the apostles had scurried back to the upper room, if we can put it that way, from that moment until Easter Sunday, they could not get out of their minds what they had just witnessed, how the Master had so willingly embraced his passion and death. They could not stop thinking of their cowardly abandonment of Jesus. And now suddenly, Unbelievably, he is there with them in the upper room. Not a single word of reprimand. Simply, peace be with you. Gratitude. St. Paul could not get over this fact. This fact of what all that the Lord had done for him. And so he said in one of his letters, he loved me and gave himself up for me. We too, we want to be permanently bowled over by all that the Lord has done for us. We ask the Lord right now to give us that grace to spend the rest of our days searching for ways to respond to this gift. We want to be generous in our dealings with the Lord. Speaking of conversion, speaking of making this decision to be generous, there is an episode in the life of St. Teresa of Avila that can help us. She herself describes the early part of her vocation until she was in her 40s as being a time of lukewarmness. Until that moment, one day, walking, passing through a sacristy, if I'm not mistaken, Teresa came across a sculpture of the Lord's scourging at the pillar. The Holy Spirit took advantage of that moment to fill, to flood Teresa's soul with the grace of conversion. And she never looked back. Later, she was to write in the interior castle, Reflect carefully on this, for it is so important that I can hardly lay too much stress on it. 
Fix your eyes on the crucified, and nothing else will be of much importance to you. If his majesty revealed his love to us by suffering such amazing things, how can you expect to please him by words alone? It is a very powerful, very concrete expression of what gratitude leads to. In the life of St. Josemaria, something very similar. We know that he would often spend time during his thanksgiving after Mass, there on his knees, with his pocket crucifix in his hand, kissing the wounds of Jesus. Really and truly overwhelmed at the thought of all that Jesus had done for us. Consider what happens when a person loses that crystal clear vision of the presence of the living Lord. If that happens, well then practicing the faith becomes something nostalgic. It becomes cultural. Parents end up having their children baptized simply because that's what you're supposed to do. Today, on this great day, we want to assure the Lord that we are grateful, that we are beyond gratitude, and that we are more determined than ever to grow in our friendship with him every day. We never want to lose the conviction that thanks to his presence, everything changes. He is not somewhere far away, out of reach, but he is right here, always at our side. And that changes everything. Going back to the life of St. Uh, Teresa of Avila, there is a, a very touching episode that can help us appreciate how much things change because our Lord is here. After years of her hard work, a lot of suffering, going about reforming her order, there came Christmas Eve, 1578, one of the worst days of her life. Envoys of the nuncio showed up with a decree putting an end to all her work. Later she was to write, referring to this moment, that it was a foretaste of the last judgment. After receiving the decree and being told what it meant, it's all over, she withdrew, bowed in grief, her face ashen gray, tears falling in abundance. She withdrew into her cell, it was all alone, there was no way to console her. Later that evening, she agreed to go to have something to eat in order to please Anna, her aide. There all alone with this, this young woman, Teresa sat motionless before her plate. Nothing seemed to distract her thoughts from the vision of her work in ruins. Suddenly, Anna saw Jesus standing at the table wearing a linen garment. He unfolded Teresa's napkin, broke her bread, 
and fed her as one feeds a child. Mouthful by mouthful, he said to her, Daughter, eat. I see how many sufferings you are enduring. Take heart, it is nothing. It is quite possible that Teresa was referring to this moment when later in her life, the interior castle, she wrote, Jesus told her that it was time she took upon herself his affairs as if they were her own, and that he would take her affairs upon himself. Well, that, the, the decree trying to shut her down, that seemed so overwhelming and so unstoppable, became, it turned out, as Jesus had said, to be nothing. Within days, it was gone. After this appearance of the Lord, Teresa walked in to, to partake in, at midnight Mass. She had been transformed. Whereas before she had been ashen gray, now she was glowing and so excited and so happy and overflowing with joy that she joined in with the singing, which surprised everyone because she could not sing. Pope Emeritus Benedict just wrote an essay on the current crisis in the church. One part of that essay can help us because it has everything to do with our Lord's real presence right here now among us. To give you a sneak preview of where he's heading in, in this rather long quotation, he says what is required first and foremost is the renewal of the faith in the reality of Jesus Christ given to us in the Blessed Sacrament. Here's what he says. The Second Vatican Council was rightly focused on returning to the center of Christian life, this sacrament of the presence of the body and blood of Christ. This sacrament of the presence of his person, of his passion, death, and resurrection. This must be returned to the center of Christian life and the very existence of the church. We could ask, why did Benedict make that, turn that into such a complicated sentence? An editor would have come along and cut out much of it. He did so because it is, it is, this is the whole point. The presence of the body and blood of Christ of his very person, of his passion, death, and resurrection. It is, it, it is here in this sacrament. And for that reason, it must be returned to the center of Christian life. In part, Benedict continues, in part this really has come about, and we should be most grateful to the Lord for it. And yet a rather different attitude is prevalent. What, predominant, excuse me, what predominates is not a new reverence for the presence of Christ's death and resurrection, but a way of dealing with him 
that destroys the greatness of the mystery. The declining participation in the Sunday Eucharistic celebration shows how little we Christians of today still know about appreciating the greatness of the gift that consists in his real presence. The Eucharist is devalued into a mere ceremonial gesture when it is taken for granted that courtesy requires him to be offered at family celebrations or on occasions such as weddings and funerals to all those invited for family reasons. What Pope Benedict, what he's getting at here is what we referred to earlier, that without the sense of the real presence of Jesus, living the faith becomes something cultural, something we do because it's always been done that way. These words, and we haven't finished the quote, but still. These words bring to mind some, something that was said a long time ago. One friend said to his, his buddy, you know, I notice that you go to Mass not just on Sundays, but every day. Do they make you do that? And the other said, well, first of all, who are they? And second of all, I am so overwhelmed at the reality of the presence of Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament that if you wanted to try to prevent me from going to Mass, you would have to hitch a team of Clydesdale horses to me. And even then I would still get there. Well, that kind of example can make us blush a bit with embarrassment. But we need that kind of example to realize, well, this is, this is the most logical thing in the world. If the, the king of the universe is there waiting for us, desiring to feed us with his body and blood, how else could we possibly react? Benedict goes on to say, and this is the final paragraph of this special portion of the essay, the way people often simply receive the Holy Sacrament and communion as a matter of course shows that many see communion as a purely ceremonial gesture. We shudder, obviously, at that thought. But he's right, of course. And so his conclusion. Therefore, when thinking about what action is required first and foremost, it is obvious that we do not need another church of our own design. Rather, what is required first and foremost is the renewal of the faith in the reality of Jesus Christ given to us in the Blessed Sacrament. Well, that is quite a powerful bottom line and the most logical one possible. To the extent that we renew our faith that Jesus is here, we will see wonders because we will see all that he will do. The very same consideration obviously applies to the other sacraments, especially to that sacrament of penance. When it comes time for the minister of the sacrament to give the absolution, he does not say, Jesus Christ absolves you of your sins. He says, I absolve you of your sins. 
It is, it is, of course, the risen Lord who is saying those words. I absolve you through the agency, through the instrumentality of his priest. It is the risen Christ who is forgiving our sins. We cannot imagine how much energy, how much power we receive realizing that Christ is here. But all we have to do is think of the reaction of the apostles. Once they realized that the Lord had risen, they were then emboldened to not only step, not only unlock the door leading to the upper room, but to head outside, to head back to the temple, to preach boldly, to be unstoppable. And here we are 20 centuries later, asking for this very same realization. We can finish with one final reference to St. Teresa of Avila. On the day of her feast day, each October, in the Divine Office, there is a very brief paragraph from one of her writings, the, her life, where she says it all. Whenever we think of Christ, we should remember with what love he has bestowed all these favors upon us. How great is, is the love that God has revealed to us and giving us such a pledge of the love that he bears for us. For love begets love. If the Lord grants us the favor of implanting this love in our hearts, everything will be easy for us, and we shall get things done in a very short time and with very little effort. Powerful words. Words that, and sentiments that we have experienced. We ask our Lord, we ask our Lady, as we step forward into this celebration of our Lord's his resurrection, to be so close to us, to give us such an awareness of their presence that we will imitate, we will incarnate that apostolic boldness, that courage, and that great joy that those very first Christians exhibited on that very first Easter Sunday. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations that you have communicated to me in this meditation. I ask your help in putting them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.